0: What's up guys, Mike Lewis here, and welcome to the Mike Lewis Podcast. If you guys want to keep up with me on social media, you can follow me on Instagram at MikeLewisOfficial and you can follow me on Twitter at MikeLewis52, it's where most of my updates come. But if you're enjoying my content, give me a like and a subscribe. And without further ado, let's just dive right into this episode. All right. Well, Mr. Preston, Charles, how are you doing? Thank you for uh, coming on the show and taking the time to do this. I am living, so let's be thankful for that. I know, I know. It's been a uh, crazy ride this past uh, year or so. I was going to kind of ask, because it's been a while since we've heard from you, obviously. I was going to ask what you've been up to in uh, recent years, if you could kind of briefly summarize for me.
1: Sure. Uh, so I am a community activist. I spend a lot of time in different communities trying to help them realize their true potential. Um, I also own my own business. It's called Placemaking Space, where I do organize, reorganizing and things of that nature. Um, yeah, I just try to keep busy and keep my head down and try to fight for this grand notion of equity or racial justice or something of those lines.
0: Yeah, for sure, for sure. What um, I, there was an article a few years ago though, um, by the New York Times. I was gonna kind of ask and piggyback off that, um, kind of ask. Uh, you to talk a little bit about that situation with what you were going through and dealing with, maybe how are you doing now? Is everything uh, kind of more situated for you?
1: So let's 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 talk about that for a second. Um, what's interesting about that article when it came out is that it really kind of delved into what I was going through at that particular moment in my life. It didn't really tell anything about the backstory about what happened with viacom like which is the parent company of mtv uh which some really really stickable things happen. i think moving out of that it was a really great life lesson for me i am not that i wanted to go through that obviously but i think i needed to go through that to change the trajectory of my life um, and really kind of focus on what's important for me it's helping others uh, during that particular time i dealt with a lot of mental health issues things that i just had repressed, didn't want to think about, weren't necessarily on top of my priority list, and so I, um, yeah, and then moving out of that, I went back to school, I'm still in school, I'm like forever in school, I study uh, decolonization studies, Um, so it's, it, it was a harrowing experience, but I am ultimately happy that that happened, I now see life in a different perspective, and I'm doing as much as I can to help people as much as I can whenever I can. Um, If
0: you're comfortable sharing, like, what exactly, how did that stem with um, you kind of uh, in that little bit of a rough patch, if you call it that, um, with how all that went down? You mentioned Viacom. What what part did they maybe play in it?
1: So without actually going into too much detail, into the weeds of it, because I don't necessarily want to relitigate the past of what happened, um, I had just returned home from Argentina. I had lived in Argentina for about nine months or so, almost a year. Um, and then when I came home, I was in contact with specific producers. They know who they are. Um, They have to deal with what they did to me. Um, And then from there, it kind of snowballed. Um, I lost my apartment. I moved into a sublet. I had bed bugs. I started staying on people's couches. I couldn't find work. It was like this whole series of unfortunate events that kind of just led me to where I was. And then I had to really kind of dig my way out of that. Um, Also, just because like, I don't know. It, 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 there's a specific type of racism you deal with um, in the United States, especially when you are a person of color and you've had this life in uh, television. One of the things that still I like get so upset about to this day is if you go to my IMBD, on my IMDb, there's a photo of a black man that's not me, and then they have me in a picture with a cop. I've tried to contact Amazon numerous times to get that taken down. I can't do that. Biocon is the one who has to do that. MTV or Buena Murray Productions—they're the ones who have to do that. And to this day, I still can't get them down. So if you search me, only when you get that, as one of your first things that you see about me, it also therefore taints. Future employers or anyone else's ideas or notions about who I am as a person. And granted, I mean, all the things that happened, that was 11 years ago. I'm no longer that individual. And I think that people don't necessarily keep that in mind when they watch these shows, these reality shows. They think, oh, that person that's on that screen must be that true life person. And ultimately, and quite typically, that's not the case. You get an edited version of yourself. What the executives would like to portray of you, and then that's what they put out in the world. And whether or not that correlates or corresponds with who you truly are doesn't really matter to them. What matters to them is the ratings. How are they going to get eyeballs on you? So yeah, I mean, there's a whole slew sort of reasons why I ended up homeless. Not all of them were Viacom's or MTV's fault, but they definitely did not help the situation. So did them or anybody that maybe you particularly knew
0: from doing shows with, did they know your situation or did they reach out or did you just kind of try to handle that situation on your own?
1: I had made a very uh, cognizant decision about what I was going to do. I didn't want help from anyone. My family didn't even know where I was. They, They, like, spent two years calling Police stations, hospitals trying to figure out where I was in the world because they just, I fell off a cliff. I just stopped communicating with people. And I think one of the things for me was that I was ultimately so hurt by like, not just like MTV or Viacom, but just like a numerous amount of people in my life that I, upon reflection, looking back on, weren't truly friends. You know, they were there in my life because I provided them a certain type of social capital. And so when I unplugged from it, all all of that went away. And then I actually had to take the time to be like, okay, what is it about me that I keep attracting these people in my life? So I just kind of had to go into a really deep dive and be like, okay, this is something I do not like about myself. Let me actively work towards changing that. Um, Like I used to be... I used to be much more critical of individuals. Um, I think that I was a little bit of a snob um, and that I also had this view of life where it's like people end up in the situation they are because it's their fault. When that's not necessarily true, there can be a slew of different things that contribute to a particular individual's situation. I mean, just like the thing of poverty, right? In the United States, we're given this whole story about like if a person's poor is their fault actually no there are so many reasons why people are poor in the united states and the thing that i always want to remind people of is that yes a great deal of people of color are poor individuals but there are far more poor white people than there are poor people of color right? like That's like something to think about. There are more poor white people than there are poor black people or poor Mexican people or whatever it may be. And so it's not that these people are poor because of bad decisions. It's people are poor because of the systems in place that continue to oppress us all.
0: Absolutely. I hear everything you're saying and, um, you know, I kind of wanted to piggy off what you said um, with kind of like how you felt like who you were friends with maybe dealing with that certain way do you feel like that situation that you dealt with kind of prepared you for uh 2020 in a way and with everything obviously i mean pandemic there's a lot of adjustments and uh, self-reflections that are going on within people do you feel like uh, everything you dealt with kind of prepared you for what um pretty much all the rest of us had to go through
1: Yeah, uh, it's funny, because I say this to some of my close friends, and I have, like, three friends at this point in my life that I keep around me, Um, but I, I tell them, I'm like, oh, I've been quarantining since, like, 2015, I mean, I really have been in this mode of isolation, and kind of just, like, keeping people away from me and just like focusing on myself and like what it is I want in life. And, you know, again, how I can do as much good as I possibly can, how I can reduce the amount of harm I put into the world. Um, So, yeah, the whole experience of being, uh, the whole experience, right, of like being on these television shows and like getting to see myself on TV and then be like, oh, God, that's awful. Why would I say that? Why would I do that? And then being homeless and being like, oh, well, I'm literally outside of society. I am, like, right there in purgatory, right? Because, like, purgatory is just, like, that moment. It's not hell. It's not, like, this world. It's just, like, something other. Um, So, yeah. Yeah. But I do want to uh, transition now into
0: kind of like how that um, aforementioned uh, start on TV came about. I always like to get um, guest casting stories. Could you maybe talk to me and walk me through what you were up to prior to Real World and how that led to um, you getting onto Real World New Orleans with your
1: casting story? Yeah, sure. Um, So here's something people don't know about me. Uh, Before I got onto the Real World, I worked for a cyber defense company called Core Security Technologies. Um, and I had, like, this really fun group of individuals that it was around. I lived in Boston at the time. Um, and so we called ourselves the rave social, right? And, like, this was just, like, me in my early 20s. We ran around Boston in underwear and, like, bedazzled glasses and stuff like that. That was, like, what I was doing. Um, so the real world had tweeted something, right? This is, like, the beginning of Twitter, you know, like, 2000, I think it was 2009, right, because I was on the road in 2010, so 2009, they put out a tweet, and was like, hey, send us something, get to be in our VIP casting, I was like, oh, sure, I'll send them a quick clip, and I remember the thing that I said to them was, I'm a billion-dollar deficit chic, because we had just, like, came out of that really huge financial crisis, right, like the... You know, for us generation, us millennials, our entire lives have been defined by crisis, right? Crisis after crisis after crisis. But neither here nor there. So I said that to them, and they're like, oh, come for the VIP casting. And this is the funny thing that happens. I think this is kind of a story that a lot of former real worlders will say is that when we went there, so they give you a plus one. I took my best friend at the time. Um, and when we got there, they were like, I saw this girl, and she had ginormous breasts. Not, like, bashing women with big breasts. It was just, like, it was just one of those things where it was just, like, oh, wow, that's crazy. And then right next to her was Ashley. Ashley Feldman. Oh, wow. And I said to Ashley, yeah, and I said to Ashley at that moment before I went into the interview or whatever, I was, like, those are out. Those, and I pointed at her lips, are in right? And then, like, fast forward through that whole process, the first day that we get to the house, who do I see? Actually. Wow. So, does she remember you from the audition? Oh, yeah, she absolutely remembered me. She was like, I remember you're the one who told me that my lips were in. And I was like, yeah, <laughs> that's weird and funny. Um, so yeah, and then it was like the typical thing that everyone else explains. Like you go through this process. There's a semifinal. There's a final round, and then they called me December twenty third, two thousand nine, and told me that I made it to the real world. And I was like, yeah, the real world. This is like something I've wanted to do since forever. Um, for just because, for me, yeah. yeah, no, for me, I so I had saw a few of the seasons. Like I remember Pedro. Like, Pedro was huge, like, instrumental to my life, because that was the first time that I saw, like, a queer man, a queer man of color, anywhere. Like, that was the first time I was like, oh, look, there's a whole different way of being. I mean, his storyline terrified me, cause I think I saw that show when I was maybe, like, seven. So, like, yeah, I was up way too late at night, because I didn't have cable growing up as a child. Uh, so what I did have was, like, basic television stations, and I think it was CBS, if I am not mistaken, that used to play very, very late-night reruns of the real world. So I got to see, um, Patriot season Season, which I believe was San Francisco. Um, I also got to see a little bit of Boston, and then Seattle. Oh, wow. So then, w- that you were pretty much like, was
0: was it an aspiration of yours to get onto the real world, or were you kind of just like, oh, let me wing this, and if I get on, and it is what it is?
1: No, I kind of had always knew. I was like, no, I'm going to be on the real world. Like, oh, that's, wow. that's something that's going to happen. Yeah, and then when that opportunity came, I was just like, yeah, I'm going to do it. And, like, some people are like, oh, I didn't expect that I was going to be cast. No, I knew I was going to be cast. Like, I knew it. I was like, yeah, no, I'm going to be on the real world.
0: <laughs> was it just, like, something, like, you just manifested in yourself, or did you feel like the uh, audition went well? What do you, what do you feel like uh, drew them, or maybe gravitated them towards you?
1: Um, I remember sitting there in the audition and having these people say some of the most outlandish things, or, like... Sorry, I'm not a hotel, so if you can hear, like, all the laughing and things going on, it's because people are happy to be on vacation. Um, so I remember being like, oh, this is really funny because these people are saying, like, outlandish things or they're, like, saying the most vanilla things. And, like, you have to understand, I lived in Boston. Boston is such a straight-laced town. It's, like, North Face and button up and, dude, brah, like, just, like, a culture that I was just not really part of. Um, and so they, I remember them asking, like, if you can build a rocket ship, what would you use? And I think I said something on the lines of, like, duct tape and glitter. <laughs> and they were like, what? Because, <laughs> like, wow. everyone else had these very practical things. And I was like, no, duct tape and glitter. Let's, let's go. Um, so yeah, and then, you know, it all came a fold and like, I would never, like, I've been, I've thought about this a lot. Like, would I still do the roll up knowing all the things that I know now and like all the things I went through because of that experience and the challenges, would I still do it now? And I think the answer is yes, because it allowed me to one really take an introspective look at myself, right? Like I have all of those videos and stuff and like I can see myself when I was younger. And two, it allows me to travel the world. Like I have been all over the world because I was on the real world and subsequently the challenges. And whenever I do a show, I stay wherever I am.
0: Well, yeah, that's definitely a positive outlook on it. I feel like there's always a silver lining within uh, anything you do. And um, I was going to ask as well, because obviously, you know, I feel like LGBTQ cast members are very few and far between. And I feel like, uh, you know, when fans that are still fans of the show or who identify, you know, some of their more cast members that are memorable, I feel like your name is one that comes up. I feel like you are somebody that maybe resonated with a larger audience, mainly, um, you know, maybe people who are LGBTQ fans. Were you out already prior to coming on to the show? And, uh, you know, I definitely think that you translated to a lot of people. Do you feel like that way as well?
1: Yeah, no, I was absolutely 100% an out- man. I used to run around town screaming, I was a power bottom. Um, <laughs> which I don't necessarily identify that way anymore. But it, it was, like, something that I was very much so aware of. And also, like... All of it. like you have one life to live why live your life according to someone else's standards why not just be truly 100% authentic in who you are and realize that's okay it's good enough like you are worthy and an amazing individual as is you do not need to hide yourself because someone else might be might hate you for whatever reason it is. Like, there's no reason to do that. I mean, if you constantly live your life according to someone else's manual, you will never, ever be happy. Absolutely. I do want
0: to ask, though, a little bit, though, because um, this was kind of a big thing from uh, your season of Real World. What was the deal with uh, Ryan Leslie from your season? I know that uh, he butted heads with uh, most of you guys. Is what we saw on screen with Ryan really like what what it was with him? or what, why do you feel like uh, why do you feel like he clashed
1: with everybody? Hmm. I think so. Like we're eleven years out from that, right? Um, mm-hmm. And so. I do not want to speak about who Ryan might be as a man now as a pair as opposed to who Ryan was during that particular time. I think that Ryan himself was dealing with a lot of different things that we weren't necessarily privy to. And I think that when you are in a situation like that, when you are with I think there was what I think Seven people to live in the house to find out what happens. So I think there were seven of us, right? Or maybe there was eight. I can't necessarily remember. But when you're around that many personalities, there are things that are brought out in you that you might not ever show anyone in your day-to-day life just because you are constantly it's like a kinetic energy, right? It's like this all the time. You're bouncing off of this person, that person. So Whatever Ryan was doing in his life or what he was going through was that person at that particular time, and no way does that reflect on who he might be as a man today. I I, I would assume that he's probably grown a lot. I don't know. I don't speak to him. I don't speak to anyone in the cast, uh, really. I'm friendly with Sahar and Mackenzie. you know, with friends on social media. But other than that, I don't. I have no clue what everyone else is
0: up to. So did you and, uh, Ryan have any particular discussions, like, after your season of Real World at that time, or after the Real World wrapped, like, that was it, you guys didn't speak after that?
1: Well, it's funny, because Ryan and I were supposed to be, on um, the first, uh, the first rivals. Oh, you were? And okay. we ended up getting cut from that, um... Yeah, yeah, we were scheduled to be on rivals. We were going to be each other teammates. Um, and we got cut because, I don't really know, something of like maybe he tweeted something or maybe I tweeted something or whatever it may have been. And like we ended up getting cut from that season. And then after that, I have never heard from him again. Um, and again, I wish Ryan the best. I have no animosity towards him whatsoever. Whatever happened 11 years ago, water under the bridge. Yeah, mm-hmm.
0: but that would have been uh, something interesting to see if you guys were on the rivals together, right?
1: <laughs> I am so happy that we were not. I just I can't imagine the type of stupidity I would have gotten myself into if that had been the case. I just think it would have been explosive and toxic and just like thank God whoever made that decision to be like, no, we don't need these two people here. Yes, perfect decision, thank you. Was the challenge kind of in your thought process though, like to get onto, or were you not even thinking of it after the real world? I was like, no, I don't wanna do the challenge. I hadn't seen the challenge and I did not, <laughs> this is gonna sound awful, I just, I did not think that I like, had a place within that world. I was just like, ah, uh, you know, there's a lot of toxic toxic masculinity going on, there's a lot of like patriarchy, patriarchy, I can't say that word correctly today. Um, and there's just like a lot of things that I was just like, oh, no, this gives me out. And then I remember being offered, you know, rivals, and then getting cut, and I was like, ah, oh, now I want it. Now I want to be on the challenge, you know? <laughs>
0: Yeah, I I feel like, um, you know, I feel like if just, and no pun intended, when something is a challenge or it feels like, you know, you have to work for it, then you want it more than say if like it's offered to you like clear cut and dry, then it's, you know what I mean?
1: That's kind of like what it... Yeah, absolutely. I think once they cut me from Rivals, yeah, once they did that, I was like, no, I'm absolutely going to be on this show now and there's no way you're going to stop me. Like, I'm getting on this show. Um, and then they offered me Battle of the Seasons, and I was like, yes, we want to do that. Definitely, and, um, I think that most people,
0: uh, listening to this are going to want to hear about this individual, and we've gotten, uh, this far without talking about him. Um, I kind of wanted to ask you now, obviously, because, you know, we kind of saw how, and I feel like Knight is one of the most iconic characters to ever be on, real world or the challenge. I feel like we saw him as kind of like the lovable goofball, maybe with a little bit of a tough exterior, but I definitely feel like after Rivals 2, we could definitely see that maybe you guys uh, grew closer or had more of an appreciation for one another. How, what was? Did you guys come out of Rivals 2 growing closer, did you feel like?
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. I think... So here's the weird thing. Um, After the real world... At the real world house... Knight and I had a moment where we both, like, came to terms with who each other were as people. We were like, okay. And then there was a few different things that happened where I, like, called him out and he called me out about some stuff so that, like, made us have a tenuous relationship. Um, After that, when we ended up doing Rivals 2, it was always that Knight respected me. Although he didn't respect me in front of the camera, right? Like, that was a thing. But, like, I always had an appreciation for him, and he did, too. And, like, he, there's this whole thing about people thinking that, like, queer people are a particular type of thing, right? Like, if we're queer, we can't necessarily be athletic, or if we're, you know, slightly... Feminine, then we can't perform or whatever like that, and I think in Rivals 2, I showed time and time again that I was able to show up, I was able to perform, I was able to do everything that all the other super masculine men were able to do, and still, like, retain a certain femininity about myself, and, like, you know, just continue to be myself. I had, like, lavender hair during that time, you know? Like, I had lavender hair, and I was fabulous, but, like, also, I was ready to throw down did uh you guys
0: kind of like? Cause I know like when you guys uh, leave or get eliminated from shows, they like kind of stick you in a hotel of the city for a while, and then you're allowed to go from there. Did you guys like uh, stay in Thailand for a while after that, and kind of just like to know each other more?
1: Yeah, I stayed in uh, Southeast Asia for about a month and a half. Additional, additionally, to what the time that we spent in uh, that bubble, right? Um, And then Knight and I took an additional week where him and I just hung out um, and, like, rode mopeds around the island of Phuket and, like, just had a lot of fun. Uh, So, and, like, I have some really good stories about Knight, but I'm not going to tell them because they're not appropriate. Uh, But he was always that person who would push you to where you thought you could not go any further And then he just give you a little pat. And then you're like, okay, I can do this. It's really amazing. I mean, Knight, for all his flaws, was really a wonderful human being. He was really a caring and wonderful human being. And, like, all the machismo and all the other stuff, like, really melted away when you would sit down one-on-one with him and, like, just have a conversation. He was a fantastic awesome, individual, extremely funny. I just, yeah, he... I think about him frequently. I mean, when I came to Haiti, within the first three days I had a dream about him. And I'm like, oh, Knight's still with us. He's here somewhere, you know. He's in the air.
0: That's a, that's a great way to uh, look at it. I was going to ask you as well, were there any uh, favorite memories of night that you had that you could share, potentially, that maybe are more appropriate? or? <laughs>
1: yeah. Um... Yeah, I, let's see. What's a good night memory? Um, I remember the last yeah. night that we filmed at the real world house. Well, there's two. So one night we went to this place called Kingpin, um, and that was in New Orleans. And him and I were just there together. There were no cameras. There were no one else around us. We were just having beers and watching hockey. And we were talking about hockey, and I was like, oh, yeah, what quarter are we in or something? No, I was like, oh, what period are we in? And he was like, wait, you know anything about hockey? And I was like, yeah, I know a little bit about all sports. I mean, I'm generally knowledgeable about stuff. And he, like, looked at me. He was just like, I never expected that to happen. And I'm like, well, I can know some things. And I was like, yeah, I know that there's three periods, right? And, like, that you're supposed to hit the world laughing, which I thought was, like, slightly racist or whatever. But he was like, wow okay, Preston. And then also, the last night that we filmed, we were at the flight, and I remember looking out on the sunset, it was me and all the other castmates, and Knight was there, and it was just, like, this sense of, like, we are this really strange, bizarre family, in this moments, um, and, like, yeah, that was, that was like, a great memory of Knight. Mm-hmm. And um,
0: I definitely do want to uh, now kind of piggyback off of what we talked about before with you kind of performing, obviously, and I definitely think that, um, and a lot of people would definitely agree with me and have to say, like, you were definitely doubted a little bit, but I definitely think that, um, at least in the, your last two seasons that you did, you were very underrated, in my opinion. Like, I felt like you performed, like, for most of that two-season stretch that you had of rivals, two and uh, free agents. Do you feel like uh, you didn't get enough respect as a competitor?
1: Oh, I mean, I don't care. (laughs) You know what I mean? It's like, okay, fine, You you don't think that I compete with you, so you underestimate me. That actually works to my advantage, right? Like, that's one thing it's about being the underdog is, like, if people don't expect anything from you, they're stunned when you show them what you can truly do. And, like, their inability to imagine that you're able to do something more quite often plays in your favor. So, like... Whatever the naysayers said, whatever they had to say, cool. I mean, I don't care. Like,
0: <laughs> no, yeah, and the, the elimination with Kahada in particular on uh, free agents, like at least in round two, like you pretty much had him if it wasn't for uh, tripping over the
1: helmet. Yes. Okay. So here's the thing that people don't understand about elimination, right? It's that before we went into that, they were like, you cannot pick up Kahada. That's what they told me. Cause if I had been allowed to, I would have just thrown him over my shoulder and like, ran. Yeah. But I wasn't allowed to do that. And then Kahada is strong. I mean, he's maybe only like five four or something of that nature, but he is, or at the time he was built like a brick. Like I mean, the guy had muscle on top of muscle, and you know, I'm like six two and lanky, so like. That was a really good matchup, and I don't know if I hadn't tripped over that helmet if I would have beat him, but definitely that helmet did not help. I'd say at least it would have took round two at the very least. It kind of looked like you had
0: pushed him more onto uh, your side of where you had to go.
1: Yeah, I think round two would have been definitely, I definitely would have won round two, and then I don't know if I would have won round three, because again, he was just in. Physically, he's just in better shape than I was. Like, his stamina is just, like, God. is a beast. I don't know if you've ever, like, if you follow him on Facebook or anything, but the man is, like, building homes and, and like, logs, like, tearing down, not tearing down, building trees, and just, like, he's impressive. He's impressive as a guy. I, I will say that. mm mm-hmm. what, what maybe, did you know that Free
0: Agents was going to be your last uh, show that you did? Like, what maybe uh, forced you to step away?
1: Um, yeah. no, I wasn't expecting Free Agents to be the last season, that I did. But after the death of Knight and Diem, um, and some things that were happening internally at MTV, I just made the decision that I didn't want anything to do with the franchise anymore. Um, and they invited me back to whatever season was filmed in Argentina. I think that was the season right after Free Agents. Mm-hmm. That was bloodlines, I think, where
0: you bring a family member or something that.
1: Yeah, yeah. So they had called me to see if I was interested. And I remember the call very vividly. And I was like, no, I'm not interested. Please do not ever call me again. And they were like, are you sure? Never? And I was like, no, I never want to be a part of this ever again. And so I haven't heard from them since. I mean, wow. it's okay. Yeah. I'm very...
0: Yeah, I definitely think that uh, after that time period for a lot of people with uh, even fans included, like when Diem and Knight uh, obviously passed, I think that everything was, became like a little raw for people. And it kind of took a lot of time for people to kind of heal and warm up again to the show again. I feel like the show in general and the fans just kind of like it went through a like little bit of a cycle for a few years before things really got back uh, rolling again, in my opinion, at least.
1: Yeah, I mean, the, again, the death of Diem and of Knight, and they happen within one week of each other. Mm-hmm. And so, like, for, and I remember, like, I went to Diem's funeral, I went to Knight's funeral, and I remember being like, I don't know about this show anymore. Like, I, I just can't see myself being in this world. And there's a couple reasons why I say that, and I think I might get slammed for saying this, but... I think that MTV had a particular responsibility in ensuring when our health and like, not just like our physical health, but like our mental health as well. And it was no secret that Knight struggled with addiction, it was no secret. Um, It was no secret that Diem had several health conditions that may have made her ineligible to participate. I don't necessarily know exactly what happened on the season that she was there when I wasn't. I I have no clue. I cannot speak to that, right? But I believe that where Viacom or MTV was complicit is that they did not, at that time, support their talent in the way that we needed to be supported. I mean, for me, like, I was diagnosed with chronic uh, depression and then severe anxiety. I'm a borderline bipolar. These are things that Viacom MTV knew about me before I even knew about it. Um, So again, it's just like, they did not live up to a standard where they treated talent equitably and then also made sure that like, These people are sharing their lives with you, they're sharing some of the most deep and intimate and darkest parts of themselves for exploitation. That's really how I felt about the show after I got done and kind of was reflecting back on it. It was like we have been exploited by this mega corporation, and there is no accountability on their end. Knight should have been in therapy. He should have been given a lot of more things of support after we had done Rivals Two, and you can kind of see, like this moment where Knight is like spiraling out of control, right? Because you have like that Rivals Two. Um, Reunion? Yeah, like, yes, the reunion, exactly, where you see him slap Frank, Frank, right? And, like, the other part of that is, like, those reunions at that time were often alcohol-fueled, right? Like, they gave you alcohol before you went on to those reunions, and then you go out there, you're all, like, juiced up, and, like, they bring up all of these topics that induce a lot of, like, anger and aggression, and then that happened, and then after that... They banned Knight from the show. So that's why he wasn't on creationist, is because he was banned for a period of time. And, like, after that, it's just like it was like a spiral for him. I I don't know. I just I wish that there was more support for the cast members. Maybe there no. is. Now. I have no clue because, again, I'm not in that world.
0: I hear everything you're saying, and I mean, mental health is a huge driving point on here, too, that I like to talk about, because I just feel like people don't take situations seriously until they see something messed up happen. Like, you know, like, people on an everyday don't really regard for other people's, um, you know, what they might be potentially going through mentally, and I feel like until something, you know, obviously, you never want to wish anything bad, but I feel like there's, there's that saying until, you know, something bad happens, then you start, you know what I mean? Like, I just feel like uh, in today's society, people need to be uh, more um, kind of thoughtful towards how people might be feeling on an everyday and not just, like, when somebody speaks out and says that they're dealing with something or acts out and does something, maybe self-harm to themselves, you know?
1: Yeah, I think in our society, we... Like you said, we don't care until it's too late, until someone has attempted suicide or someone has died, right? Like, that is, like, when we start to care. And, like, the other thing is, is that whether or not fans know it, what you say, we see. We see all the things that you say, whether it be praise or the awful stuff. Like, that stuff gets to us. And after you read enough awful things about yourself, you can't help but absorb some of that into you right and so like with fans it's just like if you see something that is like and you want to speak up about it great just do it in a respectful way in a way that doesn't belittle or attack person or is going to make them feel like utter garbage I think there's a real difference between making a critique on someone And just trashing that individual, and especially if that individual is on reality television, because this is something that I used to tell people a while back, it's like, a lot of the behaviors you see on reality television are behaviors of people with mental illness they might not necessarily know that they have mental illness, but a lot of times the behaviors that are coming out are individuals lashing out or behaving in a way that are quite often um, symptoms of a larger condition. And so if you don't know that as a person who's going on television, that you might be suffering from anxiety or depression or any of these other things, borderline personality disorder, any of these things, right? It's exacerbated once you're on television. You are put in these high-pressure situations, and then you start acting out. Like, for instance, when I was on, um, so we were in Punta del Este. So we were on, we were on free agents. I remember when, what is her name? She, it, oh God, what is her name? What is her name? There was a moment where a black woman, um, Devin. Sorry. Devin, Devin. right. So there's this really amazing moment where Devin decides that she's no longer going to wear weave. She's going to do her natural hair. And I remember Devin saying to me, I'm going to do this. I would like you to attend this little ceremony thing that I'm having. And like, I was so deep in a deep depression while I was there in that house. I couldn't get out of bed. I spent an entire, maybe week and a half, two weeks in bed just because I like couldn't get out of that. And I, at the time, had no clue what was going on with me. I just knew that I just, I could not do what I wanted to do for her, which was show up and support her at this moment. I just couldn't do it. Um, And it wasn't until like years later, right? Like until I got into therapy, I got into therapy because I was homeless. Again, I was suffering with a lot of depression. I wanted to kill myself, all these other things. And it wasn't until I was in that process where I was reflecting back and I was like, oh, I was depressed during that time oh i was you know i was experiencing anxiety about things and like i didn't know how to express it like during rivals 2 there wasn't one day when we were out going to go into a challenge that i didn't throw up there wasn't one time every single time that we went to a challenge i threw up and that is an anxiety induced response to like the environment i was in but like i didn't know i just knew that like my i was nauseous and i had to throw up you know, things of that nature. So it's like, it's really important for people to understand that people who are on reality television are human beings. We're human. And I, I thank you for sharing uh, all those stories because I think it's important that
0: people who've been on TV, maybe currently on TV, like people see these larger-than-life titans on their TV screens, but in reality, they're pretty much the same as the people watching it. It's just one of which is, on your screen, and the other is not, you know, so, you should probably just treat others the way that you, you yourself want to be treated, and that we might make substantial progress as a functioning society.
1: Absolutely, I couldn't agree with you more, Mike.
0: And, um, I do, that reunion also was kind of just a bad idea, I think they went live for it, right, for Rivals 2, which they normally, like, pre-tape the reunions, and
1: I just think it was a mess, like, on all fronts. Yeah, it, yeah, you're right, you're 100% right. It was an absolute mess. It was it was a car wreck, that's what it was. You, People were experiencing a live car wreck as it was happening, unfiltered, and it just was not, there were so many, there was, the other thing people don't realize is that like, whatever you get seen, whatever gets seen is typically like one to 3% of the footage that's shot, right? So it's like one to 3% of the experiences that people are having there. So they're typically, are so many things that you are unaware of that the tensions between other individuals. And so like a lot of times, you don't understand the conflict. Like you can't understand the conflict because there's no way for them to ever fit all of the conflicts in there, right? But there are like some terrible, awful things that we as human beings, as we as cast members do to each other. And so like your opportunity to redress that is during these reunions It's just an awful time, right? Like, ideally, you would be able to take care of everything else that happened between you two off-screen, but, like, because of the nature of reality television and, like, our geographical differences and whatever it may be, that's your opportunity to address everything, and, like, that's when you see sparks fly.
0: I want to ask, though, kind of, uh, because we haven't talked about her either, and she's a bit of a polarizing one amongst fans – what what was your last dynamic like with Jemmy when you guys last spoke?
1: Why? What what is she, What do you mean she's polarizing? Why does she does some? Does she do like I don't understand? Tell me what, Mike.
0: Well, she, <laughs> it's kind of uh, ironic timing. She uh, this past weekend was kind of like uh, in a tiff with um, Zach's fiance on uh, Twitter that kind of uh, sparked uh, flames. So you have. Fans picking sides and whatnot, so she's either loved or hated. I feel like there's no in-between with her, and I know that uh, she's obviously a big uh, cast member from your real-world season, so I was going to uh, ask kind of what your dynamic like was with her when you guys last spoke.
1: Um, I haven't spoken to Jimmy in probably a year or so. I have nothing... I will say this. I have no clue wherever the controversy is between her and the fiancé of Zach or whatever, but I will say that her relationship with Zach runs long and runs deep. So, whatever it may be, I don't know. Let's just keep in mind that there is a history between her and Zach that is very long and runs very, very deep and is very complicated. Zach was one of the people who came to Knight's funeral. There weren't many of us. But Zach was there. So, like, I don't know who this fiance is. I have no clue who she is. But I would guess to say that she is a person in his life for less time than Jimmy has been in his life. Maybe not. Maybe it's an old school yes. I have no clue who the person is. But I'm just, like, I'll preface with that. Mm-hmm.
0: So um, do you have any uh, plans for the rest of the, the year with um, maybe any projects or, uh, you know, anything related to business that you want to speak about?
1: Um, let's see. Well, right now I'm in Haiti. I am doing a project on the political theory of decolonization. I came to Haiti because this is the first black republic, the first and only, well, not the first, but the only successful slave revolt in the history of the world. Um, and then on top of that, they have a beautiful, amazing historical sites. So I have been here for the last 15, 16 days or something of that nature, taking in the culture, the experiences. I will say this, people often, especially in the United States, love to peg emerging markets, developing nations as dangerous or corrupt, we really need to start thinking about the language that we use about other places around the world. The United States is a dangerous, violent country. It is a corrupt and morally bankrupt country. And for us to continuously cast other nations in that light does not reflect on the people, who they are, or the actual circumstances on the ground. So. With that, I'll say if you have a chance, come to Haiti. The political situation in the west of Haiti, which is the Port-au-Prince, is not ideal. That's probably not the area you want to go to, but the north, for sure, like the Departemento in de Nord, beautiful, amazing beaches, amazing people, great culture, UNESCO world sites. Like, Come and explore the world and don't allow other people to tell you what's happening in these nations
0: beautifully said i uh, couldn't have said it any better myself but um i appreciate you hopping on here today preston and uh taking the time to do this it's um good to see that you're in a better spirits today and i think that a lot of the people that are going to be watching this are going to be very pleased to uh see that you're doing well for yourself and better
1: and um i'm glad to uh see you're doing well Thanks, Mike. This was fun. Um, I wish you continued success and much joy and happiness and may the plague of 2020 slash the virus pandemic end at some point, some point at least. (laughs) Thank you so much. Uh, I'll talk to you soon. Thank you. Take care.